What is the the biggest number one question that all of a sudden has come up, let's say, in the last month or two? Well, I think it's two things. I think that it's how are we going to how's the economy, the global economy, the U.S. economy that has so much debt? How is it going to digest the, the current level of interest rates uh, without any accidents? Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. I'm pleased to be joined by my great friend Peter Bookvar coming on the show today. And any Wealthion viewer would have seen you in the past. And of course, I know you from our CNBC days. So it's great that we have this connection that we can continue this for the audience. Obviously, Peter Bookvar is an independent economist and market strategist. The book report is independently produced by Peter Bookvar. He's also the chief investment officer of Bleakley Financial Group. That's a registered investment advisor. Peter's one of my great friend, market commentators, analysts. There's so much to get into right now, right? You write, you write so much. I got pages of your notes over here. And I have to get right into this. You you wrote today or yesterday in the last 24 hours, you've been going through all the earnings calls of the you know the quarter that just ended here. And you're seeing a lot of, you know, like the CDM was uncertain economic conditions, contraction commentary. Where do you see us based on what those earnings calls are telling you for the rest of the year? So so a common thread through all different industries is challenging macroeconomic environment. And I think I heard that uh, a million times, not just in the current batch of quarterly earnings, but seemingly for the last few prior. Now, you, we can we can pick apart where uh, which parts of the economy are doing better than others. You know, there are some certain standouts in terms of business uh, way outperforming other industries. Like we heard good commentary on anything related to travel, leisure and entertainment, whether it was Live Nation or TripAdvisor, uh, even Booking.com, which got beat up after the reported earnings, definitely highlighted uh, the robustness of, of, of travel. Then on the other hand, really anything related to industrial and manufacturing uh, and, and transportation as part of that, uh, things remain very challenged. And then with respect to other parts of the consumer uh, and, and, and sort of a corollary to the spend on services and leisure, uh, the flip side is they're not really spending much on other discretionary goods items like furniture and jewelry and electronics and, and so on. This is what I want to get into later. So I'm glad you mentioned it now. We'll just just get right to it. Is there this dichotomy going on where okay, the people that have money are willing to just spend it at Taylor Swift concerts and traveling all over the place? And then, as you mentioned, you know, McDonald's talking about. And so one of the things that we saw industry-wide is that the low-income consumer, which we would say is 45000 and under, was negative from an industry standpoint, and that you're starting to see these kinds of trends. Are we, are we having an economy that is the haves and the have-nots? It's definitely very, very bifurcated, but that's what happens when inflation flares. Obviously, that lower-income consumer is much more sensitive to the box of Raisin Bran costing $8.00 instead of something like $5 or $6, where obviously the higher income consumer is not going to mind spending the extra couple of bucks. I do think, though, it registers, though, for the upper income consumer that things are more expensive, but at least for that sort of stuff, it's not. But even the higher income consumer, I, I do think we're reaching some limits. And whether it's at some point, even a high income consumer is not going to want to buy cereal for eight, nine or $10 a box. So at some point, 
no matter how much money you have. I mean, I used to work for a billionaire and he snapped at the fact that a hot dog was $3 in Manhattan, right? He's like, this used to be $1 or $2. I don't want to spend three. I'm out. I, I agree. And, and I think myself, you know, we're paying more attention, you know, like when you, when you, if you go to out for dinner with friends, you go to a steakhouse and, and steaks are 65, $70. Like that's crazy to me. Uh, and, and I think it's hard not to pay attention or whether you're booking a flight somewhere. I think we're, we've been consumers for many years and you know where, where prices have been, you see where they are. So I think this very sharp, notable rise in inflation is affecting everything. But in terms of actual dollars of spend, it certainly is a greater portion of one's income for those on the lower end. And they are certainly, quote unquote, prioritizing their spend, which is also something that I've heard many times. Fortunately, we're going to hear a lot uh, from retailers in the coming weeks, from Walmart and Target and TJ Maxx and Russ Stores and Home Depot and others. Uh, so we're, we'll do, be able to do a deeper dive on how consumers are responding to the, to, the, to the current environment. But one last thing on that, you know, speaking of CNBC, they, uh, Becky Quick interviewed the CEO of, uh, of Target, Brian Cornell, where we heard from him a few weeks before their earnings release. And he even talked about consumers becoming more uh, careful with what they're spending on food and beverage in terms of pack size and, and buying smaller pack sizes instead of the bigger ones. So there's even a, a behavioral change when it comes to that necessity. I think about shrinkflation, but shrinkflation is the the companies make smaller packages and try to try to sneak that on you. Here you're saying it's the consumers going out of their way to buy smaller packages. They're doing that and and also they're economizing their cooking. We heard from Canagra, which is a stock that we own for full disclosure, where they talked about consumers are and they they learn this information through surveys that they do. The, the consumers are becoming much more um, economizing and, and focused on what's in their pantry. I mean, there's literally doing inventory control of what's in their kitchen. And when they're sitting down to cook, rather than just cooking lunch or dinner for themselves, they're trying to cook for multiple people or multiple meals at once, which would then help them to save money. So when you hear all of this, where does that tell you about where we are in the market? Does that feel like we're a little overheated and, and the bounce back of the last few days maybe is, is unwarranted. How are you telling your clients to position themselves in a world where you've got kitchen inventory controls, right? That doesn't sound like a, a bullish market to me. Well, it certainly doesn't square with a, a 4.9% Q3 GDP print that we saw, uh, which was pretty shocking to see how well uh, the consumer has held up. And I talk about the consumer because that was a major driver of that print in addition to an inventory build and also government spending. Uh, but I think as, as uh, we got into October, based on what I've heard from earnings calls, you know, it's still a, a very sketchy uh, economic environment. One thing that we did notice also in Q3 GDP, and I'm seeing that in a lot of calls too, is that business spending is, is, is not growing anymore. Uh, that, that whether it's on, on IT products, we heard from a company called CDW, which has a few hundred thousand customers. They're a distributor of everything from hardware to software to telecom products, mobile, mobile devices, uh, security products, cloud computing stuff. So they touch upon all different areas of tech. And for most areas outside of cloud and security, 
businesses are being very careful about how they spend money. So I think with the economy going forward from here, outside of government spending, which has been um, a lift to uh, GDP, is can the upper end consumer continue to spend as much as, the, as they've been spending? And I think that that's really going to be a, a key sort of uh, uh, dial on, on where the economy goes from here. But, and a lot of that will depend on also where the stock market goes, since from a wealth perspective, uh, the higher end consumer definitely responds to the level of the S&P 500. You know, that to me sounds like a circular argument, right? Not, not I'm saying you're circular, but like from a consumer point of view, if, if the economy goes, if the, if the stock market goes down, then all of a sudden the higher end consumer maybe spends less, but the stock market will go down if they are predicting that the higher end consumer will spend less. So it, the market is behaving in a circular way. If that's the, the paradigm here. You make a great point, and this goes back to Alan Greenspan when he used monetary policy to goose asset prices on the belief that higher asset prices would then in turn help consumer spending and help the broader economy. And Bernanke sort of took that baton and was one of his rationalizations for why he did QE. He said it himself in, a, in an editorial, I think it was back in 2012, rationalizing uh, another round of QE and how it would lift stock prices and then possibly uh, the economy. So we've certainly conflated the two back and forth, whereas once the stock market would reflect expectations about economic activity, and now the stock market is helps to drive in parts of the economy economic activity. You make a good point because I think about Maybe it's myself or people I know. You look at the value of your house or you look at the value of your stocks and you think, oh, I'm rich now. I can just spend a bunch of money. I can buy $8 boxes of cereals. I can do all of these things, even though those are not liquid assets, right? Even though those are not, they're not income, right? It's just a, it's just a, a paper profit. And, and as you explained, I never thought of it this way. It's a, it's sort of a, not managed or it's, it's like a created, right? It's they're they're forcing these numbers higher to make you feel better about yourself so that you'll go spend money, even though the money that you're spending is not the money that actually was increased in value because you're not spending money from stocks or your house. You're spending money out of your bank account. Right. It's very ephemeral in a way, like you're, you're spending more of the perceived increase in your wealth rather than an increase in your bank account. And that is why when you look back over the past 25 years, when you look at, so the Fed every quarter sort of uh, prints out their own balance sheet on the economy, uh, household balance sheet, business balance sheet, government balance sheet. And when you look at net worth and net worth, including money market funds, your checking account, your savings account, uh, the value of real estate, the value of, of, of stock portfolios, net worth as a percent of disposable income has has continues to make higher highs. In 2000, when the stock market had its, its epic uh, bubble, well, that ratio got very high. In 07, that ratio got even higher when home prices were very elevated relative to income. And now that ratio is even greater as, as home values and the stock market and the so-called everything bubble relative to one's income is at, at extraordinarily high levels. But this is what happens when you go through multiple decades of easy money, it lifts those asset prices. Now, in terms of wealth effect, it's actually more pronounced 
when it comes to one's home. So let's just say you buy a house for a half a million dollars and the, all of a sudden home prices go up and the, the market value that you think is, is the market value based on, on what you see uh, from your peers is called 600,000. Well, you'll be more inclined to spend 20, 20 grand to update a bathroom in your house because you say, well, I, the value of my house is, is more. I can afford to spend this money because I think I'll get it back when I eventually sell it. And worse comes to worse, if I need to tap into equity in my home, well, I have some equity because the house is now worth more than what I paid for it. So there's a direct influence. And I look at it the reverse. If you spend a half a million dollars like you did in, in 05 before the housing crash, and all of a sudden that house is worth 400,000, well, you can be sure you are not putting another penny into that house until the perceived value is greater than what you paid for it. So it's so true, right? And I think about the psychology of investments based on that, right? Based on factors that you could say are maybe related or not, but the fact that Bernanke and Greenspan are admitting we are manipulating, that's what I was looking for, but we are manipulating these asset prices to get people to spend, to me, these sounds like psychological tricks, right? We're not actually making the economy better. We're not making it better for anyone to get a job. We're just making this everything bubble. And then you're using that everything bubble to delude yourself and like, let's go renovate a bathroom. And then, you know, you hope that that does spark the economy. Do you think that that's the right decision? Do you think that that's how they should be trying to stimulate the economy? Or is it just, hey, that's the impact of psychology. So that's just what they did. So I, I don't think it's the right thing. It's certainly what they do. But the problem is, is that all you're doing really at the end of the day is pulling forward future economic activity and future- I can only renovate the bathroom once, right? I'm not going to do it right. every year. Yeah. Exactly. Like all you're doing is pulling forward future stock market activity also to the current, because that's what the Fed is trying to do. They're basically Wait, hold, hold saying on. to let's, the- Let's break that down. You said you're pulling forward future stock market activity. You're almost saying that if the stock market was going to take five years to grow 20%, you're kind of front loading that to a 20% growth in one year. And then the next four years, you've kind of already front run those gains. Is that what you're trying to get at with, with how you're describing it? it, it exactly. I mean, over okay. time, let, let's just assume a constant PE multiple, for example. You know, okay. over time, corporate earnings should grow in line with nominal GDP. Nominal GDP globally, if you're a multinational and nominal GDP in the US, if you're a domestically focused company. And then, of course, you get uh, the differentiations in P multiples. When, mon when money's cheap, that P multiple tends to go up and vice versa. When money's tight, that P multiple goes down. So when money is cheap, earnings may still grow over, a, call it a five to 10 year period to the same level, maybe bunched up in the early part because the Fed's trying to stimulate economic activity to happen now instead of tomorrow. So you'll get more, econ more economic activity, more earnings growth today, but then that pulls forward from tomorrow. Like you say, you can only renovate that bathroom once. And if you do it today, you're not doing it tomorrow. But that's also the same with interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. So the Fed is saying, okay, I'm going to lower your mortgage rate. So instead of you waiting six months to 12 months to further save up for your down payment, well, how about this? I will lower your mortgage rate 
I will thus lower your monthly payment. So maybe go out and buy that house today instead of waiting. So with all you're, you still wanted to buy a house, but you're doing it today instead of tomorrow. With it, and the same thing with an auto loan, for example, obviously another very interest rate sensitive part, part of the economy. So all they're doing is sort of reshuffling things. They're not growing the pie, they're just altering the timing at which things take place. But that's what then leads to booms and busts because when the time comes for the Fed to eventually tighten monetary policy, well, then you get the hangover, just as we had in 2000 to 2002 and 08 and 09, and we're potentially having uh, a hangover now with the, uh, the sharp rise in inflation, the most aggressive monetary tightening in 40 years to confront it. And now you have a totally different economic and investing backdrop that, uh, aka a much higher interest rate environment after 15 years of basically zero. Exactly. I'm glad you got to that because obviously we're not in a QE situation. We are no longer easing, right? We are definitely tightening for real. And everyone can see that rates were zero. Now they're five. So what what do you expect going forward, right? Because you said it's boom and then bust. I haven't seen the bust yet, but I'm looking at, at your report last week's book report. You mentioned positives and negatives. You And I've got, you know, pages of, of your notes here. 13 positives, 26 negatives, twice as many negatives as positives, but yet S&P is above 4,000, right? Like people are still investing. People are still buying Starbucks and Airbnb and travel and new iPhones and all this stuff. So I'm waiting for this bust, but it hasn't, it hasn't got there yet, despite everyone talking about it. What, what is going on here? Why are we not seeing the true bust yet? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So when you look back, and I'm not going to include the, the COVID period, if you look back at the prior bubbles in 2000, 2002, we know it was in tech stocks, then it shifted to housing. The, the excesses from this 15-year period of zero rates, negative rates, and QE really manifested itself in a tremendous way in sovereign bonds. You know, because the sovereign bond market was the vehicle at which central banks ease. And they took it to such extremes. The European Central Bank took it to such a great degree where they created a, an era of negative interest rates, which is something that we had never seen before in the history of, of, of interest rates and the amount of, of uh, balance sheet expansion that these central banks took upon themselves. So now we're seeing an unwind of that. But that unwind doesn't affect everybody all at once because not everyone either has any debt outstanding, or if you do, which we know a lot of households and businesses do, it affects them in different timeframes. So if you were a business that had floating rate debt, well, you were impacted immediately with the Fed raising interest rates because most floating rate debt is LIBOR, well now SOFR plus uh, a, a spread, and SOFR is directly tied to where the Fed takes the Fed funds rate. So there are a lot of businesses out there that were immediately impacted by the rise in short-term interest rates 
via a, a big jump in interest expense. So companies that had cash flow and were able to absorb that, well, they can get through this, but there are a lot of businesses that don't make it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that have gotten hurt by the rise in, in, in interest expense. Whereas bigger companies that have access to the capital markets, well, they have done, uh, they, they're able, they've been able to term out their debt. So it's really more impactful to small, medium-sized companies. Like I said, they don't make it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but they're getting impacted on a daily basis. The, the commercial real estate landlord or developer, uh, well, if I, if, if I own a multifamily property and I took out a loan in 2000 and I got a 3% rate and I took out a five-year loan, well, in, five, in, in 2025, well, it's going to reprice to probably eight to nine, assuming interest rates are at the same level, which they could or maybe they won't be. The point being is that I haven't been affected yet, but if interest rates are going to stay high for a while, that train is still coming towards me. And I'm either going to have to put in some more equity via capital calls. I'm going to have to pay down debt, but it's still a risk ahead for me. Or if maybe you don't have to wait till 2025, you can be sure that every single day there's a business whose loan is coming due and it's going to reprice at a much higher rate. Or if you're in a household that took out an adjustable rate mortgage, maybe, and your mortgage rate is repricing. If you had a 30 year, you're, you, you'll be fine. Um, but also on the credit card side, we've no credit card rates. The average rate of, for unpaid balances are in the, in the 22, 23% range. If you want to buy a house, we know you got to pay up and a car and everything. So it, it doesn't affect everything all at once, but it's, it, there's a general repricing of all the debt out there that will take a couple of years to work its way through. But as it does, it means that people and households and businesses have less cash flow for other things because more cash flow is going to pay a higher interest expense. So I expect this to, to further spread out uh, and impact more and more things uh, as time progresses from here. And obviously, these are the negative signs, the negative sides of higher rates, right? When people are borrowing like adjustable rates or your loan comes due, you're going to have to borrow at higher rates. In your note today, you did talk about Japan, though, which is at the opposite end of the spectrum where their rates have been artificially low for a long time. They're trying to boost those nominal numbers. But there are a lot of problems with rates that are super low. Can you talk about the the other end of the extreme, what you're seeing in Japan right now? So and, and this will tie in because, you know, I've talked a lot about the rise in short term interest rates. But we know over the last couple of months we've seen a notable rise in long term interest rates. And I do tie that back to Japan as well. If you look at the end of April, uh, I'm sorry, the end of July, the Bank of Japan further widened their yield curve control to deal with inflation that is running twice their uh, their 2% target. So it, it has been uh, very small steps in their tightening cycle, even though they still have negative interest rates, which I don't think is going to last that much longer as we go into early 2024. Uh, but once they did that, that caused sort of an earthquake in global bond markets. And even the U.S. 10-year yield, which touched 5% a few weeks ago, even at, call it 460, that's still up from about three and three quarters in mid-July before the Bank of Japan made that move. And I do think as the Bank of Japan gets out of negative interest rates, maybe eventually gets out of yield curve control completely, that could still, that can lead to another 
rise in interest rates around the world at the same time the Fed's doing QT, the ECB doing QT, uh, the Bank of England doing it, Bank of Canada, Reserve Bank of Australia just raised interest rates. So we can still see a rise in longer term interest rates. Now, to talk about but the positives of higher interest rates is if you are a saver, if you have money in the bank or in money markets, well, wow, you have interest income all of a sudden after 15 years of nothing. If you're a baby boomer that spent their whole life saving, all of a sudden you have bonds that are, can give you nice yield. So who's, look at the cruise line business. It's booming. In fact, uh, passenger counts uh, for certain companies are at or above where they were in 2019. Uh, you, wait, you think that's because boomers are getting 5% savings now, and so they're spending that on cruises? You think, you think higher rates leads directly to cruise lines benefiting? I mean, let's take a, a, a boomer, a couple, 75 years old, and they had a million dollars in the bank in 2020. It was yielding them basically nothing, and they didn't have much alternative in the treasury market or money market funds. So maybe they were making a couple of thousand dollars on that million dollars of interest income. Well, now they can be in a 5% money market and make 50 grand. That, that is a notable increase in the income for a lot of these savers uh, that have money. That's, that's a good point. I never thought about that. I never thought about higher rates as a vehicle to spend more, right? Because the whole point of higher rates is that we try to slow the economy down. It, it, yes, absolutely. I, I think, I think the, the issue that the Fed is facing here is it's not just having interest rates where they are today. It's that they're here today after 15 years of zero, and they're here today in a very condensed fashion. So having 15 years of zero, and then you go up sharply right. in an 18-month period, you know, things get sort of upside down. Now, to the benefit, as we mentioned, with baby boomers, but to the detriment of someone who wants to buy a house for the first time. We've had not, we don't have not, not just a 7.5%, 8% mortgage rate, but that's on top of a 45% increase in the average price of a home over the past three years. And that is why you have the existing home market, which is essentially dead in terms of the, the number of transactions. In fact, the Mortgage Bankers Association, their weekly uh, purchase application data is the lowest since 1995. You want to talk about the definition of stagflation, high prices and almost no activity. Of course, in the housing market, you have uh, better new home sales because of builders wanting to fill that vacuum. But um, the Fed is, has turned the thing, the housing market upside down, where theoretically you get a rise in mortgage rates, you should get a decline in home prices to offset that as the market resets. We, we haven't had that. So much to ponder there. What are you telling people to do then in terms of where to put their money? How do they play this? So as a wealth management firm, we, 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 we struggle with what to do every day. You know, I, I think from uh, an investor standpoint, um, if you're not sort of trading the market, having a long-term time horizon is crucial because uh, it, it, it allows you to sort of block out the noise here. Uh, but it's important to also understand that tough markets, and I say tough because while the S&P 500 seems to be hanging in there, notwithstanding uh, you know, the pullback over the past month plus, you know, the Russell 2000 just 
a week ago closed at a, at a multi-year low. There, there's, as we know, and, and on this network, we talked about how a select few stocks are, are sort of masking a lot of underlying weakness. So what we are managing client money is, well, on the fixed income side, we're getting a gift for the first time in many years. We're getting interest income where you don't have to take much risk. So at least on a percentage of the portfolio, whether it's 30, 40, or even 50% for some people, having uh, uh, an attractive oasis of bonds to buy is a good thing. The stock market is where it gets much trickier here because multiples in many parts of the US market are still very high. And we wanna be very conscious of that in terms of exposure and focus on more of the, the cheaper areas of the market that haven't done well either, I admit. Uh, and, and value stocks that we own have, have, haven't done that well, and that's been painful. But I do think in terms of a risk management perspective, it's important to do. And also international investing. We've been very bullish on Asia and investing there. And even in China or India or Singapore or um, uh, Vietnam and Japan, even we've been very long and bullish. And also in terms of the U.S. market safety trades, uh, the two best safety trades over the past two years has been energy stocks and precious metals. So we've been long those for clients. And uh, I, I think that that sort of safety nature and, and that shock absorber for one's portfolio in those things will remain the case. I'm glad you mentioned Asia because that was going to be my next question in your note today. You mentioned you were on a, a conference panel recently and, and you predicted that the Hong Kong equity market would outperform the US S&P 500 over the next year. Talk about that why you think that and, and what people should do with their money, let's say if they are typically focused on an S&P 500 trade. So putting aside the, the geopolitics, because no one will can really tie that into how this will work. I, I'm assuming that practical minds uh, end up revealing themselves and that there won't be a war between China and Taiwan and, and the U.S. and China. Uh, I think it's mutually assured destruction. So under that thesis, um, the Chinese economy has obviously had a disappointing reopening, but it's important to slice and dice the Chinese economy. We have the housing market that where developers, many developers are in distress, but that will work its way through. In fact, having over-levered builders go bust is how you cleanse an over-levered system. So there's a lot of pain involved in that but I do think they'll come out of that in a, in a much healthier way. In terms of wealth, because we know that a lot of Chinese have a lot of their wealth in the, the real estate that they own, yeah, there's going to be an impact there, but Chinese consumers have a savings rate of about 30%. They have a lot of equity in their homes. So I don't think that there's gonna be a leverage story to that. Manufacturing is in a recession globally, and China remains a manufacturing um, powerhouse. But once the world goes from inventory drawdowns and destocking, which we've seen, to an inventory restocking cycle, the Chinese manufacturing sector is going to get a lift, just as many manufacturing areas around the world are going to get a lift. And what we're seeing in terms of leisure and hospitality, we talk about it being a, a strength in the U.S., it's also been a strength in China because they were locked up for a couple of years and they want to recapture uh, lost living there as well and going out and traveling and eating uh, at restaurants and so on. Uh, so I do think that the Chinese economy is gonna further heal as next year progresses and the Chinese stocks have been left for dead 
and owning the Hang Seng could be sort of a uh, called a safer way. The H shares there could be a, a safer way of of uh, playing that rather than uh, than, than the A shares. And I do think because of the valuation discrepancy, and if I'm right on the recovery, and not just the Chinese economy, the whole Asian economy, I mean, the Indian economy is doing well. Uh, Japan is a much more exciting story. Just the growth of Asia, there are ways of playing that. And the, the Hang Seng is, I think, is, is a way of doing that. So I think you could, as you mentioned, and what I said was that that has a high potential to outperforming the US stock market. And if you polled a room of 100 people and, and, and asked to raise your hand if you agree with me, I would bet you maybe only two to three people would, would raise their hand. They think I'm crazy. Maybe you are crazy or you're right. We'll find out. We'll find out in a year. It could be both though, right? You could be crazy and right. Yes. What, what is the, the main question you're getting internally, right? In your role as chief investment officer, when you're talking to portfolio managers or, or clients, what is the, the biggest number one question that all of a sudden has come up, let's say in the last month or two? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I think it's two things. I think that it's how are we going to, how's the economy, the global economy, the U.S. economy that has so much debt, how is it going to digest the, the current level of interest rates uh, without any accidents? And I, What do you mean by accidents? Um, like rewind to March when Silicon Valley Bank uh, went bust and a few other banks right. went bust because their balance sheet was offsides by owning too much duration. Uh, that was a, a bust situation, call it. Uh, a, a bust situation where maybe it's not as high profile as that or accidents, but other over-levered uh, players that uh, run into trouble. I would say that the commercial real estate market, there are accidents happening every single day. You know, like as I said earlier, somebody's loan is coming due. And all of a sudden that, that positive cash flowing property is now uh, a, a, a loss. On a cash right, flow right. If the difference, if your profit difference was based on the interest rate on that loan, all of a sudden if that loan rate triples, now you're probably losing money on this. Yeah, and that's been the, the formula for real estate for the 40-year bull market and bonds when interest rates steadily fell. I mean, that that's the magic of, of that's why you, you hear about wealthy real estate people over many decades is they used uh, the benefit of cheap money of lower and lower interest rates uh, to finance their properties. And uh, it, but it, it's a levered asset. Private equity is a levered asset. It's a levered long where the gift of, of lower interest rates was a benefit and now it potentially could be a curse leading to more accidents. The other thing, and to your, again, to your question about what we're getting a lot of questions on for clients is just the, the, the geopolitics on top of this fragile feeling about the economy, whether it's interest rate based or inflation based, obviously they're both intertwined or signs that the labor market's now beginning to uh, soften a bit and show some cracks. You know, the geopolitics laid on top is, is gets just people nervous. And while geopolitics historically 
has had very little impact on the economy and markets, you know, unless it's a, a world war, uh, it, it, it's somewhat fleeting. And, you know, you look at the, you know, the, 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 the horrific attacks in the Middle East, you know, it hasn't, it doesn't directly, or it hasn't yet directly affected the price of oil because Iran, the major player that's caught in the middle of this, well, their production and the delivery of their oil has not been impacted. And even if it did, well, luckily Saudi Arabia has a lot of spare capacity that they can fill that gap. So what have we seen over the past couple of weeks since that attack? Oil prices have actually fallen because people are worried about global growth moderating, that's lessening the demand for it. So um, it's definitely a, a very nervous, fragile time. And um, I, I think that there are a lot of investors and clients that are sort of on edge, but are just sort of sitting back, waiting for th how things play out from here. Sitting back and waiting. It's, it's hard to do that, right? Because it feels like you want to have an answer. You want to have an action. You want to have some sort of decision. But maybe right now it is, is more of a wait and see time because there are too many moving parts in the economy and in the geopolitical world to really know this is exactly what we're going to do. And like you said, at 5% rates, what does that mean for the futures of Silicon Valley banks? What does it mean for government bargains? I don't think we've ever had rates this high with debts and deficits this high, right? Like the combination of the three is a unique, you know, all-time high in the history of the United States, I think, unless, unless I'm forgetting something. Well, so, well, absolutely on an absolute basis and certainly on a ratio basis when you look at debt relative to GDP. Now, debt relative, uh, business debt relative to GDP is at a record high. Consumer debt as a percent of disposable income is not. It's fallen a lot over the past 15 years, fell a lot after uh, a lot of, lot of mortgage forgiveness and people um, left homes that they back then lost or, or couldn't afford. But that sort of ties in to, to the question of, you know, I said, like, how does the world's global debt level being so high absorb this high level of interest rates? You know, we're getting a lot of questions specifically on, on the U.S. government and that the, the, the debts and deficits are just getting so large, so like mind boggling large that how you wonder how this plays out. I mean, what happens if? We have a failed treasury auction, for example. What happens if we get this disorderly rise in long-term interest rates, similar to what happened in, in, in England with this uh, pension fund blow up and Bank of England had to step in? It, it, it's You get a lot of what if questions if these things happen. And whereas when the Fed was more in, in control, um, when inflation was low and and they were doing QE and, and, and they had the uh, sort of the license to do as they wanted when inflation was low. Now that inflation is much higher, even though it's obviously slowing, uh, they just have less flexibility to react and the market can sort of speak out on its own. Uh, and you wonder like, how does the Fed manage that? How does US Treasury manage that? How does the US government with exploding interest expense manage that. I mean, again, the numbers are just so large when you talk about the U.S. government uh, within the next year or two spending a trillion dollars on just interest, interest expense alone. So what do you tell people? What's the answer when, when they're asking, well, you know, these are the questions, what's the answer? So on, on the, from an investment perspective on, in, in treasuries and just bonds generally, I just think you're safer 
owning short duration in bonds. So short duration, meaning like how short, like six months, one year, like how short? Uh, I, I think I think it's OK to go out two years. I mean, the, the two year Treasury is pretty tethered to uh, the Fed funds rate. So two years. And if you want to stretch past them, maybe three. But uh, I think um, uh, anything north of call it six to seven, I think, is is very much at risk of, of losing uh, some capital gains uh, would somewhat mitigated by higher interest income. But uh, I, I think that longer term interest rates could continue to surprise to the upside. And on the equity side, you know, I think that at the end of the day, when this bull market runs its course, and I do think we remain in a bull, I'm sorry, bear market runs its course, because I still think we're in a bear market for a majority of stocks, that the overall PE multiple is going to be lower than it is today. And uh, you just got to make sure that the companies you own stock in uh, see an acceleration of earnings to offset any multiple compression if you don't want to lose money in that stock. Peter, Peter, so good. Thank you for the time today. Appreciate all your insights. So let, let our audience know where can people find more from you directly? I know you've got the book report or is it is it a sub stack? Is it Twitter? Like where, where are all your platforms so people can hear from you directly? Well, firstly, Eric, it was, it was great to chat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, on the my my writings every day, it is a Substack. It's uh, peterbookford.substack.com, and I call it the Book Report. And then on the wealth management side, uh, as the CIO of Bleakly Financial Group, anybody who wants to learn about us can go to our website at bleakly.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate the time and we look forward to talking to you soon. Same here. Thanks, Eric. Everyone, thanks so much for watching. I know a lot of you are watching this and thinking, maybe I need to get some financial help to figure out how to better invest in your future and your family's future. Look, if you're already working with somebody and you trust them, excellent, that's great. Keep working with them. They can help get your finances and investments on track. But if you're not working with anybody, or if you think you don't have the right person, or you want a second opinion, you can certainly connect with us. Consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses. This is completely no strings attached. You'll see the short form on Wealthion.com. It only takes a few seconds. It's totally free to have these consultations, and there is absolutely no commitment to work with these advisors. Wealthion provides this as a free public service. They look to help as many people as possible. If you've enjoyed this conversation and liked this video of Peter and me, please show your support, hit that like button, and definitely subscribe below.